These episodes feature contemporary artists presenting the latest exhibitions and projects. This podcast is brought to you by the Periton Gallery, based in Paris, Hong Kong, New York, Seoul, Tokyo, and Shanghai. My name is Brett Littman. I'm the executive director of the Osama Noguchi Museum and uh, formerly was the director of the Drawing Center, uh, where I had the great pleasure of working with Gabrielle on an exhibition in 2016. Um, this is the second time that Gabrielle and I talked. Uh, we did a really nice talk at the Drawing Center around the time of the show uh, Sound Inscriptions in Fabric in 2016. And that talk was pretty personal. I don't know, we got, we got into a lot of your personal history and things about your father and other things. But I think today we're, we're not gonna go that direction exactly. Um, we may get into some things. Um, but it's really great to see Gabrielle have a show here at Periton and have his first big show in New York. Um, and I was really happy to come to the opening earlier uh, this week and spend some time with the work. So I am gonna start off with a slightly personal question about um, growing up in Kalima, because it was interesting. Yesterday, Gabrielle and I met and chatted at Noguchi, and there were a couple of things that you told me which I, I didn't know about. Um, you know, Kalima is a, a, a pretty small town right in the southwest of Mexico. Um, can you talk a little bit about your upbringing, and particularly uh, the things that you mentioned about kind of being on a farm? Because that, that may play into some of the, the, the discussions we're going to have later about materials, uh, particularly in this show. Okay, thank you very much, Brett, to be here and accept to do this second talk, in a way. Thank you so much, all of you. It's a beautiful day after having really cold weather and everything, and be here on Saturday is so nice to have you all here. It has been something really special to be preparing with Donald and all the Perotan team this exhibition for more than a year, I think close to two years, to prepare the 21 pieces that they are in the second floor downstairs. And uh, I'm so happy to work with such a professional and nice team and be here right now to give this talk. Uh, answering your question, Brett, uh, since I was a little boy, that I, I really like to put the, the picture of me when I was four years old, it was quite interesting that as a left-handed, uh, there's a planes with the letter M. I was uh, a left-handed, and the first time I grow or learned how to write, I did it totally backwards. And I remember the teacher telling me, oh, Gabriel, this is fine. Just has to be from here to here, totally the opposite. And I never say why or anything. I just uh, followed the instruction that my teacher at that time, she gave me to do it in the opposite way that I naturally did it and makes sense for a left-handed to write on this direction when a right-handed write in the, that other direction. And it was interesting that my family, and that's why I have an accumulation of many things, my parents never throw away anything. They keep my homework from that time and maybe that's why I'm, uh, I don't know, collecting everything right now. I, I think I maybe on the edge of being a hoarder, but yeah, you do yeah, like yeah. things, yeah. <laughs> I saw some TV shows about hoarder and all these kind of things, and it's scary, but I use everything what I collect or I accumulate through time. And it was interesting that I did the way the teacher showed me how to do it, and I turned the page in the other side and did it in the way that I naturally did it. To me, I think that is a question that I don't know if I know the answer, that when an artist starts, 
I think if I have, I don't know when, a retrospective of the work, I should start with this page that to me could be one of the first works. And I don't know if a boy of four years old could be named as an artist in a way, because I think it was a very interesting statement that you follow the orders in the opposite way that you naturally do, and then do it by yourself. And I think it was something really interesting that I think is like the beginning of many things. At that time, uh, I was born in Mexico City and lived all my life in Mexico City, even that all my family is from Colima. So Colima, that is nine, 10 hours away from Mexico City on the Pacific coast, is a beautiful uh, state where you have the beach and you have the mountain. So living in a very, one of the biggest cities of the world, full of traffic, pollution, and many other things, with no insects and no birds and no, the skies are gray instead of blue. Uh, when I went to Colima, it was totally the opposite. The contact and the discovery of nature with all these colors of insects, uh, birds, uh, plants, and many other things, it was really quite interesting to, to see uh, and I think it's like an answer of why in this exhibition it's interesting that I'm using organic materials like hair, eggshells, and feathers in a way to compose some works. But didn't you say something exactly like if, if a family member went away or your parents went away, you had to take care of chickens or something? It was, was that, I remember something very specific about that that you told me yesterday. Yeah, my father always, I went for vacation and I say, oh, father, I'm coming to vacation, but I'm working harder than in Mexico City. I have to wake up at 4 a.m. to to take the milk from the cows and then I need to do the cutting of many things and then I he put he bought some chickens to make a business for vacations so we have to take care of the chickens it was really interesting how the eggs they have different colors and many other things and I really like the feathers of the birds and chickens and all these kind of things so it was like the first business and and it's a, quite a connection with the, the materials I'm using now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I want to skip ahead a little bit. I mean, you did get your degree in architecture uh, in Mexico, but then in 1998, you came to New York to study fine art at Pratt. Um, why did you decide to leave architecture and come to New York and, and study fine art? I mean, it's a big shift. Uh, you know, there are many architects, of course, who do do that, and there are artists, of course, who might go the other direction. But what, what, what was the impulse? Why did you not want to practice architecture? Yeah, I love to see a child here that I am like, it's like a mirror image in a way. I loved uh, that since I was a little boy, I was reading, I was, I thought, I think that I draw before I speak or I write. So drawing, it was like a natural, uh, a very natural way of express myself in many ways. My father was a philosopher, also was a writer. I have dyslexia, I write backwards. The way I see numbers and characters is totally different. So my way of expression always was visual in a way. And I always read the monographies, um, biographies of artists that I admire. And I was really scared to be an artist because I said, I'm gonna be very worried that I cannot live what of doing what I most love in life, that is doing art. So that's why I decided to 
study architecture. And as a student and also as an architect for five years, I finished in 1991 and until 1996 that I decided to quit architecture. I tried to really push the boundaries between architecture and try to push it into art. But there was one point that uh, architecture is a service and has a function. And I really, you cannot say how your clients have to live and what furniture they have to put or no furniture and what colors they have to do. And the clients cannot change the spaces that you designed. So at that point in 1996, I decided that when architecture has a function and is a service, it will never be art. So it was one point that I have to decide when I was 28 years old. I have to decide if I want to become an architect or an artist. Mm -hmm. So I choose for art and I moved from Colima. I closed my architecture firm and nonstop I came to New York in 1996 that uh, it was a kind of big adventure in many ways. I saved money and I asked some friends that they were living in New York in 1996, how much do I need to have for a month to live? Yeah, how much was that in 1996? $1,500. Yeah. Okay, just, just checking in, want to make sure. <laughs> I keep the books because I was uh, putting every cent that I uh, spent to have the record and never went over 1,500 US dollars. You know, I, I know that you and your partner are building a, a house in Mexico City with an architect. So how, how is it as a, a recovering architect to work with an architect? My dream was, I, when I quit architecture, I always knew that I'll be back in architecture, but not anymore as an architect. I will be back as an artist somehow. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, it was interesting that with the ceilings, that is a previous series that from the eggshells that I that makes sense to to be working. So right now I'm 50 years old. I have been saving all my life to build an apartment. Right now it's going to be a studio and a house, and I bought the land and and I spent like one or two years trying to think to do my only project in a way, and it was interesting, but after two years I said, no, I don't have the time, I'm doing my work, I'm not, I need to hire a, an architect and we're gonna do a collaboration. Uh, after in interviewing five architects, I choose one, and I say, okay, we're gonna do a collaboration, but then she started doing the, the project, it's Frida Escobedo, that she, we have been working two years in, in the project. And there was one point that I said, no, I'm not a, an architect anymore. I'm an artist and I really want to have a project by Frida Escobedo and I'm gonna be the client and a very weird client in a way. <laughs> I don't know if for good or for bad, but it has been a, such an amazing experience. And I, it was interesting that after more than 20 years, I realized that I'm not an architect anymore. Mm. Uh, but architecture is visible in many, in, things that in you the do. work and everything. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you, because this is going to definitely uh, lead us into the current exhibition, you're going to see some slides of some of Gabriel's very early work from his days at Pratt, um, even his studio it looked like at Pratt. Uh, but, you know, going all the way back to that time, 
Um, you worked with the three materials that are actually in this show that make up the, 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 the substrate, or at least the uh, materiality of these works, eggs, feathers, and hair. So could you just explain a little bit about how you were approaching those materials in the time as a student at Pratt? I mean, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating in some ways that that kind of circularity of time, because you've worked in so many different materials and you've questioned so many different ways of using materials that you would actually come back to those things that might have been the first things that you did as an artist. Okay, yes. Uh, it's interesting that uh, I was always attractive to the eggs, to the feathers, and also the hair. When I switched, when I quit architecture, it was 1996, and I arrived to New York, I was getting bald, and I, there was no way to comb my hair, and I say, I'm using spray, it's ridiculous, I'm gonna, I well, don't want to There's always Donald be, Trump as an example. I don't want of to do the Oaxaca cheese like style and or something like that, so I decided to buy a, a shaver, and I shaved my hair, hair at the first time, and I threw it away. Until now, I say, why I didn't keep it? Mm. So it was good that it was like quite uh, getaway. And to me, it was a kind of symbol of uh, doing like, like the first change from architects from an artist. At that time, the way I see her, it was in a different way. So in Pratt, it was more obvious in a way. And I started using painting eggshells, uh, complete eggs from the, from the meals that I was eating, and also I was using a lot of feathers in a way. At that time in 96, and also coming back in the Masters in 2001, in 2003 from Pratt. Could you talk a little bit about your studio practice? I mean, you have also a couple of pictures of your studio uh, in Mexico City, but you know, you, you described to me your studio as a laboratory, and it definitely, knowing your work and knowing the breadth of the work that you've done over the last now almost you know 20 plus years i mean you know as an artist or thinking you know about materiality i mean you've worked with matches paper plastic foam discarded shoe soles speaker grills hair rubber extracted ceilings photography obsidian canvas eggshells feathers i mean it seems to me that you're always asking a question about a material um, you're always trying to find the right material to work with in the studio how how much experimenting do you do? I mean, are, are, is it, in some ways, are you working on the, a similar serial project in four different materials until you find the right one? Or does the material kind of present itself and then the form follows? Well, there are like many questions. Many answers. Yeah, no, many no, no, questions but it's, yeah. it's really nice. I, tr I will try to answer each of and all of these. I, I, I don't consider myself as a painter or draftsman or sculptor. Uh, I believe that reduced art as a media is totally unfair. To me, art is much more than that. Uh, I don't need to be or study art to be an artist. And I'm a person that uh, raises questions, and I love to see art as a question. And the objects or the final works to me are answers. And in the middle, there's a process that is quite important and very interesting. That there are a lot of images of the process of what I'm how. Uh, a question become an answer, and all the process that is always in an archive of each piece in the studio, collecting many different materials. Uh, so be besides that, I, I, I'm an artist that I'm trying to, to try to find the balance between the formal and conceptual. For me, the first impact of any art piece, even if it's the most conceptual, is always by the eyes. So has to be beautiful, has to be, the contemplation is something that I really like, 
Uh, and from then, you start asking questions. If you see that one of the lines of the hair drawings downstairs start to breaking the bidimensional thing, turning into a three-dimensional, creating a shadow, and you discover that it's not ink or pencil, that they are hair. And the hair has information that the genetic information or DNA doesn't, is not, cannot be seen by the eyes, but has energy. And there are like many levels of uh, thought in many ways. So something that likes you maybe and make you think is like the best thing that could happen for an artwork. And uh, with the materials, I don't know, for many, for a lot of time, I tried to have an idea and try to do that idea in any different media that I know. It could be a photography, I do a painting, I do a sculpture, I do a drawing, I do an installation or a video. And it was interesting that from all the different me medias that I can represent an idea, there's always one that is the strongest one. So I decide to think about in many ways what could be the best media that could be for a specific idea. So I, with that, I, I'm all the time in the weekends going to flea markets and trying to walk and keep records in photography and everything, and I'm collecting everything. There's like a little bird that is a smash hummingbird that I was walking in the street that I took the photograph because it was a hummingbird that he was killed by a car and it was like a Giacometti, it was completely flat in the street. And I took the photographs, I, at that time I was with a friend and he said, oh, so weird, you are taking photographs from a hummingbird? And I say, no, the, the photograph is not enough. I need to take it. Take the bird. So I say, sorry, I, I, I took it and I put it in the middle of two pages from my book that I was carrying. And, and I did uh, a lot of things into that piece mm. and I was playing. So I'm collecting things from everywhere. Uh, birds are something that I always, when I see a bird that is dead in the street, I take a photograph and the bird is, and the eggshells and the feathers and the hair, uh, there are collections that they are like an archive in the studio waiting to do something. And then you describe many, and there are many, many collections, the shoe soles, the ceilings, the rubbers and the aluminum plugs from offset printers and I'm a trash collector in a way, but, uh, but everything that I collect has, uh, is waiting to be done in a series or in a specific work. Your, your studio practice has changed a little bit because you told me like in, you know, after 2013 you were really working by yourself and now you have 16 people working with you, you said? So yeah. in some ways I, I think what's inscribed in your work, which might not be necessarily apparent to the viewer, is this idea of care and labor. Um, your current mm -hmm. work, particularly the eggshell pieces, I think really exemplify that. How long does it take to make a piece like one of the pieces downstairs? I mean, it, you know, it looks like it might take a day or a week, or, but I mean, I think if you're talking months, and sometimes those pieces, you told me if the color doesn't uh, match up, that you have to kind of throw it mm -hmm. away and start again. So how has that changed the way that you approach making work? Because now it may not even be your hand anymore, but you have assistants or other people, and you're instilling in them the idea of care, that you want it to be better than the way that you would make it. I think you told me that. Yeah. 
And when I was an architect, I tried to do everything. If I'm gonna, I designed some houses and I did the design of the house, also the furniture design, also the paintings and the art in the house. Everything was done by, I didn't do ceramic at that time, but it could be possible maybe. You could done the plates and do it. Cups, but it was yeah. quite interesting that I was designing everything and I was doing everything by myself. Mm -hmm. And in, from 1996 to 2013, I was alone in the studio doing everything. I was, right now that I have an assistant, he said, how can you do all this just by yourself for so many years? There are so many things going on. And the problem was that I have some ideas that I put them in the sketchbook. But, and I do like the first text and I say, okay, it looks amazing, works. And I went for do another experimentation and most of the ideas that works for being artworks or series, they will keep in the book. I don't have the time to develop and these kind of things. And it was one point in 2013 that I decided to, to use the, the actual fragments to start uh, in a surface, I, I don't remember if it was 30 by 30 or 45 by 45 centimeters. I spent months to just putting fragments of white eggshell, one to the next other, covering the entire surface and making the numbers and the counting of how long does it will take me to do a two meters by two meters. It's like a little more than six feet by six feet actual piece, it will take me four years and a half. And I say, no way I can do, I can be four years and a half by myself just doing one piece. It will be no possible to do that. So at that time, it was the time that I, before that, I thought that nobody can do what I do. And I thought that I have to do and touch everything by myself. And I asked for assistance. And I, the first assistant that arrived to the studio, I was like trying to motivate and I said, okay, you have to do this. I need more than two hands. I need four hands to do what I want to do. And he did it perfect. And I was like, wow, great. So I'm gonna go for a second one. <laughs> and then for a third one. Right now we are 16 people in the studio working because there are some projects and some pieces that takes a lot of time. Uh, one person just looking for discarded shoe soles all over Mexico City and do the classification. And that takes so much time and so many months. And right now I just said to the, to the assistants that uh, I don't want, uh, I thought that nobody can do what I do. But right now I'm asking you to do it better than I do. And they are in a perfect direction. They are amazing. And it's quite interesting how right now I can work in like five different series at the same time and they can be developed. One series comes from the next one and that's why the title of the exhibition is Tantra. Because uh, I was just about to <laughs> get to that, but okay, you can, you can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, Tantra is like... Uh, but actually, just to be clear, it's T-N-T-R-A-A. So did anyone know that that spelled Tantra? No. So the, Can you pronounce that? It's like tantra or, or <laughs> uh, Maybe in my old experimental poetry days, I might have been able to do a phonetic, uh, but I, I don't think I can. T-N-T-R-A-A, -A, which of course com combines to Tantra. So tell me, why, why is the show called Tantra? Yeah, always, like the, all the 
titles. Uh, title is a quite complicated thing. There are so horrible titles in the art scene in many ways. I Sometimes I really like to do a research about titles of artworks and everything. For me, a title has to be an information and has to be global with no translation. And that's why all the titles in the show, uh, there are numbers, and the numbers is information of the pieces of hair, of feathers, of fragments of eggshells that they are composing the surface of the piece that you, you see. And with the title, I really want a, a, a word that in English and Spanish is greeting and the meaning is the same, and have six characters, two identical consonants, two Ts, and two identical vowels, two As, and two different consonants that is the NR, and it was divided, consonants and vowels with a space in between that you cannot pronounce and you can just see. Mm -hmm. So it was like, and, it's, and you have to codify, it's like concrete poetry in mm -hmm. a way that I really like. And it was, the meaning is tejido, that is like kind of textile and also continuity. The eggshells belong to the ceilings and uh, the hair drawings belong by the act of quit painting in February 2004. The feathers is like the parallel of the hair that contains also DNA and genetic information from birds. And they are from two different species that the connection is the egg, one outside and one inside from these two different species. And they are coming, it was interesting that appear the hair drawings in 2004 and 14 years later, the feathers. And it was the first time to be shown this new series. It was in this exhibition here at Perotan. And it's coming a third element in this series that will come right, in don't, the future. Don't say anything yet about that, because yeah, no, I, no, I want to no, get to that. That I um, really like to... To, to see it, but everything is like a continuity. That's why Tantra was something that it was really important. Also the, the problem and the concept of, that we have about the monochrome, the abstraction and the figuration in a way. Mm -hmm. That is another issue that is really important in this show and in my work. If, if you know Gabrielle, and, and I would recommend uh, Juliet Kennedy's very interesting essay about this exhibition, which is, uh, you know, and, and she really is referring to everything from higher mathematics to the Kabbalah to sequences to dates and other forms of organizing numerical information. Uh, Gabrielle is almost a Kabbalist. I mean, everything can be broken down into numbers and those numbers can be, you know, kind of added and broken down even further. Um, you love kind of putting numbers together, and then oftentimes that seems to also structure the number of pieces that could be in a show or how something is sequenced. And, you know, when we installed the, the show at the Drawing Center, I think you spent a lot of time almost doing the math of how to make that back wall kind of work in some symmetrical way yeah, that yeah. was meaningful to you. Um, you know, I'm not sure that the viewers ever really understood the mathematics behind it, um, but you spent a lot of time adding up how many pieces we were gonna have and what that number was going to be. So it is something that you kind of think about. There's always some understructure uh, related to mathematics counting numbers uh, in your work. Yeah, I, I really believe that art is for everyone. I love when, when you do something and everybody has to read it in a particular way. But everybody has to hate it or love it or whatever, but it's for everyone. For experts, for people that is not connected into art. And the numbers are, and everything is 
has like a different layers of information. Here in the exhibition, there are three series and there are seven pieces per series. So there are 21 pieces in total that the two plus one is a three. And there are, there are always connection in, in numerology. I'm reducing everything into just one character. And I love really the text from Juliet Kennedy, Amy Sambach, that is with a Fred Sambach, is a friend. And she recommended me, she said, oh, for this show, Juliet Kennedy, I think is the best person, is a mathematician, that she will write something really interesting about your work. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about that everything could be reduced in, in numbers, but this more than numbers are systems in a way. And, and those are like, part of the process and I really like all these things that I don't know why I do the, all these, that is all in the blinder and in the archive of each, uh, each of the pieces of the feathers has uh, a file and we have all this information from all these files that is quite interesting that is not just what you see, mm -hmm. that is something beautiful, uh, maybe a composition or something. There's a lot of layers of information in, in every, in every piece. All right, so since we're talking about the feather works, could you uh, talk a little bit about the relationship to Hannah Darbovin's work? Because that seems to kind of underpin, particularly the pieces here, that which this we're ones. looking at here. Could, could you explain a little bit about Hannah, how Hannah Darbovin is uh, influencing this particular body of work? Yeah, there are like many influences. The first one is the three elements that since I switch and I quit architecture, the hair, the feathers, and the eggshell, they were like the three elements that they were present at that time. And 23 years later, they are connected here. Colima was something that uh, it was like my contact with nature and, and somehow with science in a way uh, that it was quite interesting. Mexico City is the place that I have been living and working all my life. And uh, a New York was like the, the city that is, has been really important since I started as a, since I was an architect, since I started as an artist. And right now, after 23 years of, the, of, the, of being an artist. Hannah Darboven, I discovered her work uh, so many years ago. And I really like the construction drawings that she did when she was 38 in New York in 66 and 67, just two years before I born, in a way. And I like all the parallels and the system that she has with repetition and differences. I also really like a book of Gilles Deleuze from 1968 that is also connected with my years of my birth, that is difference and repetition. And he states that repetition doesn't exist, doesn't exist to identical things. Even that is repeated and they are identical or similar, they, they are differences. And the repetition and the difference and also these structures that connect by a diagonal, two squares, four squares, and eight squares in multiples by pairs, they are creating these repetitive patterns that start to appear as geometry somehow. All the 21 works in the, in the exhibition are based in the square in one shape by 60 by 60 and 90 by 90 centimeters. And the idea of the mo monochrome becoming an image and an image becoming a monochrome by distance or information is connected in all the works. Mm -hmm. If you go far away from 
for example, here it was appearing like uh, fuchsia that is a kind of dark pink with orange. If you go really far away, it makes these two colors into one. That is the color of the pink Flemish. And uh, the, go, the closer that you go, this monochrome turns into an abstraction. And then when you discover about these colors and everything, it turns into an image. And it's the same like if you close your eyes and become a monochrome, and then if you stay with your eyes closed, start appearing colors or kind of abstraction. And if you open your eyes, it appears an image. So all these connections are quite interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And also the square is creating a grid. Each of the feather pieces are 34 by 34 centimeters that create a grid of 1,156 squares that is one centimeter by one centimeter each of the squares. And when you have like the veins or the structure of each of the feathers, it breaks the grid into a uh, interesting, uh, another composition in a way. And the direction of the feathers, the light will decompose to create different tones of the same color also. Even the, the blue on the black monochrome, that is a monochrome that appears a grid and then appears like a sensor image pixelation in a way by the differences of tones by the direction of the feathers. That here they are the two monochromes that, I don't know. Well, I mean, color or lack of color and, and the idea of the monochrome is very important in your work. I mean, in this book, you know, many of the pieces are essentially white on white or, you know, monochromatic. Um, I think that the idea of the, the feather pieces seem to be a slight departure because I don't think, other than maybe the early work that you did as a student with colored feathers, uh, that color has played a particularly in, important role. Although it's the lack of color or color itself, and of course in, with the feather pieces you are talking about how they become monochromes uh, by distance, but of course as they change as you come closer. But this kind of brings me to one thing that we talked about yesterday, and you know, my take on this show, and maybe it's also my own personal bias as being the, the former director of the Drawing Center, is that this is really a kind of a, a show about drawing, because, and I know you don't like to separate the mediums, but because in a way, um, these works are pretty intimately scaled. They're, they're not large-sized. large, large sized. The way that they're installed, you really have to kind of come closer or further away from them to understand them. So they, they're related to the body. Um, I know that with the hair works, you know, you, you said that you had done a lot of research to try to define what drawing was. And I guess this is the sentence. If you don't mind, I'm going to read exact your quote. Uh, a group of lines and dots that creates an image or an idea or a concept on paper. So that was the, uh, the way in which you define drawing. And that hair was a way for you to use maybe not graphite, but another drawing tool or medium uh, to express what you felt a drawing was. So in some ways for me, you know, I, I really like this idea that this is a meditation uh, on drawing, even if, it, even if you view them as somewhere between painting, sculpture, and drawing. Um, so I don't know if you agree or disagree with me, and maybe you know, we could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I try to avoid uh, categories or classification mm -hmm. in, in a way. I love when something is everything and not, nothing at the same time. It could be a drawing, but also it could be a sculpture and it could be a painting. It could be everything and none at the same time. And I like this for many people. And I love the, the way that we discussed that yesterday about the, that for you were drawings 
and for 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 me are what they are in a way mm -hmm. could be a, a drawing in a way and but also they have like this cutting and assemblage and this three-dimensional thing mm -hmm. the three uh, things and a connection with this sculpture in a way because the eggshell is an object that doesn't have a flat surface mm -hmm. and when you break the and Everything. Well, you also do it in the hair pieces. I mean, because of course, when you get up close, you see that there are strands of hair yeah, that go beyond the mat. Yeah, they are cut and assemblage, and mm -hmm. they are, and that's why I choose hair because it's a dot and a line at the same time mm -hmm. in the same element. The definition of a line is a succession of dots, and I love to to start uh, from definitions in, in a way, and then from the definition, then to practice and to choose the elements, mm -hmm. and all my work is completely the same, even that everybody says that is completely different. Just the mate each material gives you a different answer in a way. But in essence, everything is totally the same. I quit architecture because uh, everything is created to accomplish a function and a service. And when the function and the service is over with the ceilings, with the eggshells, with the hair, with the feathers and everything, those materials that becomes uh, a remained or trash in a way, when the end of something could be the starting point of something else. Mm -hmm. And one of my definitions of art becomes with, as a parallel of the definition of uh, energy, that art is not created or destroyed, it is just transformed. Mm -hmm. Transformation is something really important for me and because everything comes from something, from some information. And I love to use the shoe soles, the eggshells, the ceilings, and everything, because everything has the information of years and years. The ceilings are belong to houses from Mexico from 19th century, mm -hmm. and they are over 130 years of being as a ceiling, as sheetrock covering the wood beams, and then when become uh, residues and trash, is becoming a painting in a way, with the information of 130 years of being there. And that makes a question of authorship in a way. So the artist has to do the work, somebody can do it instead of the artist, there are instructions, they, I love that a material can appear a hundred years before my birth, and then will still changing after maybe a hundred years after my death. Mm -hmm. So just the artist, that's why I never sign uh, anything, because the name and the artist is not the most important thing. And I, in the school and, and in many ways, in many books and everything, they could be a lot of pyramids saying that who is the point of the pyramid, if the creator or the gallery of the art or the artist of the museum or something. And to me, it will be like a pyramid that will be empty and just the artwork is what means. Mm -hmm. It's the only one that will survive maybe and is the most important thing, doesn't matter who did it or who have it in, in a way, just the world by themselves I think is quite important to to look at as that. Well, I mean, I would say that the show that you and I worked on at the Drawing Center, which really for me was about whether or not, I mean, I, I think the question had been answered a long time ago, but whether or not there could be a ready-made drawing, I mean, for the audience, the traditional audience that wanted to see works on paper drawn by an artist, um, your show was a, a thorn in their side for sure. And I got a lot of feedback you know, that people were, I mean, I don't want to say upset, but, you know, they, 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 un they didn't understand why I would show stained speaker grills that you had collected in Mexico City as drawings. 
Um, you know, for me, uh, and we talked and I directly asked you, I said, is this your drawing practice? And you said yes. And I took you at face value because I believe that that, that is a drawing practice. And that's why I start the, after the title of this talk, the, the pair of speakers, to me, I put it because it was a connection when I met you a long time ago in 2015 in Mexico. And I was installing these speakers' fabrics that it was at the drawing center in 2016, three years ago in summer. And uh, I just saw Brett just quiet looking all these works. And at the end, he just, after 20 minutes. Well, I or came something, with someone else who was doing a lot of talking. Yes. And I was, I was being a little bit quiet. <laughs> yeah, and he was just quiet looking. And he said to me, What are these? And I say, Oh, those are. Speak fabrics from speakers from radios, vintage radios from the 1920s, 1930s. And it was amazing to me how sound can create a, a drawing or an image in, uh, in, through time. And I was, the first time I saw it at the Luis Barragan house in Mexico City with Amy Sambach that I, it was, uh, I think, September 17, 2013, something like that. And uh, I saw the speakers at that house and it was amazing that it was a kind of geometric skeleton uh, stay there and I was like, oh, I love that speaker. I have been here so many times and I never pay attention into that fabric, into that speaker. And makes sense that the sound in the acoustic box with the fabric, with the fabric, uh, takes in and out the dust of the space and slowly through 60, 30, 80 years of doing this is marking like the image of the speaker that most of the speakers are circles in a way. And it was interesting how sound and light and time can create a drawing by itself. It's a record of these speakers. And these are the stereo speakers that uh, even that is the same sound in two different acoustic boxes, the image has differences mm -hmm. by repetition. And it was a mirror image and I really love it. I didn't do anything about these works. And that's why in this exhibition is totally the opposite. There are three organic materials. Is I love to see my studio as a laboratory and close to science, asking questions in many ways and many directions. And uh, they are a labor, uh, intensive labor and time doing all these pieces and all these works. And uh, they are like, I don't know, it's totally the opposite of the ceilings and maybe the speakers and maybe other series. All right, so I want to ask one last question before I open it up for um, any kind of Q&A if the audience has questions. So um, I asked you not to talk about what you want to do next, but now I want to talk about what you want to do next. Um, so you were saying yesterday that, and one thing that really stuck with me was this idea maybe of sky, earth, and sea, or you were kind, maybe you were describing it as like the above, the ground, and then the below. So there was another uh, material uh, that you wanted to work with. So could you tell the audience a little bit about what the next body of works are, what, what that material or materials are going to be? Yeah, it was interesting that when I started with the hair drawings, it was because I quit painting and the best way to see painting is when you are out of it. I took the methodology as, as an architect that I, if I will design a house, uh, uh, a door, 
is cannot be any door that I know as a door. So I start from definition. So when I went back to drawing, I decide not to use pencil or ink or any media that is connected with what a drawing is in a way. And I start by definitions. And I stayed with the, with the hair drawings. And, uh, I, sorry, I... So I, I was thinking a little bit about uh, these the new materials yeah, yeah, yeah. that you might want to work with. And, and I never uh, expect that this discovery somehow I believe that you will have one piece, then become a series, and then become a media, in a way. And 14 years later, I was thinking that the parallel of the hair drawings, I, in 2008, I took it out from my career, because at that time, the gallery says, oh, don't do anything, just the hair drawings, and that's it. And I was like, no, the hair drawings are important, but it's, it's like the line that, discover many other things. Everybody knows me as the artists that do hair drawings. Every hair drawing that they show somewhere, it was sold, so I was freaked out and I decided to take it away from the market, keep the series by myself, and every work that I have been done for 11 years, I just gonna put it in the storage, waiting the time to to be mm -hmm. out again. And right now, it was here with this exhibition at Perrotan, the best time to, to get back right now with the second step of that series, that is the feathers. And I'm working right now, I found an alchemist that is amazing in Mexico. And I was reading that the feathers, the hair, and the scales of fish and mm -hmm. reptiles are three elements from three different species that connects the theory of evolution in many ways. So we are working right now, I don't know when is gonna be this third series that makes sense as close like uh, these uh, three series that has been connecting many things. The, the three elements are contain creatine, genetic information from three different species. One are the birds that are in the they fly and are in the air. The mammals or humans that we are in the land, and then the reptiles and the fishes that they are below land and they are on the water. So they are like the three elements that I really like, and the results are, I don't know, it's gonna be, I think, interesting. We are, the most right now problematic issue is the smell that we have to take it away and, uh, and see how we're gonna do it. So we are exploring Experimenting. this and we love that. Sometimes we take like years of exploration of how we're gonna glue the hair, mm -hmm. how we're gonna work with the feathers. In the beginning, I was close to work with an artisan with the feathers, but uh, there's no discipline and anything. It will be a nightmare. So I, I like that I, I don't know turn in an opposite way the, the craft of uh, using uh, feathers mm -hmm. in the past and as a craft, and I put it in another level that is quite interesting with the pieces that they are downstairs. Thank you, Gabrielle. Um, I wanna open it up to any questions that anyone has in the audience uh, about Gabrielle's work. Does anyone have any questions? Yeah, okay. And then, Robert. Yeah, do you want? Hi, Gabriel. Um, I was curious to see, you know, where you get your ideas from, and I was, I, I couldn't help thinking of the history of Mexico itself. 
and specifically feathers in terms of uh, pre-Columbian art, or at least it was as it was used by the pre-Columbian uh, societies. I was wondering if that you took that into consideration, or that was not totally. Uh, yeah, I. In the Museum of Anthropology in Mexico, yeah. they have amazing items made out of feathers. Also, when I was at school at that museum, I think the feathers was something that really connects me. In religion, the, the religious art made out of feathers in 17th, 18th century, I think it, they are amazing. Also, I collect uh, Victorian jewelry made out of hair that is connected in Europe more in the late 19th century and 20th century that connects. Uh, right now, the feathers pieces are really expensive. I cannot have them. So I prefer to go to a museum and try to, to see. I, I was last year here, and there was an amazing exhibition of uh, showing some feathers at the Metropolitan Museum in New York that it was amazing. Those are, to me, contemporary uh, art in a way, even that is pre-Columbian art from Peru and other cultures from Latin America. So that's why time is quite really important. I'm really connected into past, and I believe that present doesn't exist. It's just a line that is transforming the future into past. And I love to see forward and backwards all the time looking through history and Asian medias in a way. The way that many cultures use the hair is quite interesting. Also the actual and also the feathers. In religion, in power, in the war with soldiers, it was a big status. They were really expensive and they are beautiful. Right now there are a lot of birds in danger of extinction. That's why I started to use the, in the first step of this series, the feathers, commercial feathers from chickens that they are dyed artificially in 13 different colors. And right now I'm trying to collect from legal uh, uh, places that can, they don't kill birds of in danger of extinction or something just because of decoration or something. And there are some legal feathers that they come from Brazil and many other places that I'm looking for the colors and everything and to see what is going to be. So, I'm... Oh, really? Oh. Yeah, I love hummingbirds, but I know that I will never gonna use hummingbird uh, feathers because there's a species, some of the hummingbirds are extinguished and some, they are close to be extinguished, and they are just for the beauty of these iridescent, different colors, feathers of birds. Congratulations, Gabrielle, on your show and your wonderful remarks this afternoon. I, I remember uh, reviewing that exhibition of the, uh, the sound drawings from the speakers, and I, I felt that it was divided between Duchamp and John Cage, actually, that. Uh, you had assigned a kind of ready-made value to the speakers, but you had added the dimension of time, which, of course, something Cage would do. But the question that I want to ask, and I think I have my own answer to this, but I want to hear you. <laughs> okay. Uh, as you know, I've been involved with conceptual art for some time as a scholar, okay? And uh, I know that this is something very important for you. 
But, you know, it, the beginnings, certainly from a European-American point of view, of conceptual art were, were very raw. But your work has this extraordinary beauty and precision. And I'm wondering if you feel that in having that beauty and precision, that you are still within the realm of conceptual art, or if you have moved in another direction which is distinctly your own. Wow. Robert C. Morgan was my one of the best teachers I ever had on my Master of Fine Arts at Pratt. I met you there. Uh, it was fantastic to, to be in your classes. Right now, I'm intimated that my teacher is asking me a question. And, and I love the fact that we, have, we are sharing the same gallery because he's a great critic and a great uh, teacher, but also he's a great artist and a great friend. So I'm really proud to share with Proyectos Monclova with you and he's having one amazing piece at the Armory. And I don't know, I, I really love, and that's why I always said that her, many curators, if our work of art is beautiful, is like an issue or a problem with many curators or critics that uh, they don't go further besides the beauty. Beauty could be destructive in many ways in nature. You can see it. Most of the birds, that the male birds are really exuberant and to attract the female and for reproduction and many other things. In, with humans are the opposite. The women are more exuberant in many ways. So beauty is quite connected even the concept of beauty, what is beauty? Because also with ugly things or maybe trash, they could be some kind of beauty. So to me, uh, beauty is part of something. To be precise in many ways, for example, if we have a mistake in a hair drawing, even if we spend months in a piece of a hair drawing or maybe an actual piece, if it's a mistake, it cannot be corrected, has to be discarded, not throw it away, just keep it as an archive in a way and start again from zero. So there are some works as the hair drawings, the feathers and the eggshells that they are downstairs that they, can, they are not allowed mistakes in a way. And more the, the hair drawings, that they have to be neat, they have to be perfect and they have to be unique in a way, but they have to raise also questions. And to me, I cannot divide uh, the visual and the beauty and the formal aspect with the conceptual aspect or the intellectual aspect. It has to be both. I love, for example, when I was a little boy, I went to the Museo del Prado to see Velázquez and I was really surprised how a, a man can paint like that without computer, without electricity in a way, without photography in a way to do these amazing and beautiful portraits. And when I see a sheet of the artists of Piero Manzoni or these kind of great ideas of from Duchamp, Cage and many other artists that I really respect and I admire and I, I have been influenced by all of them and I say how a person can think about an idea like this. And my goal is to think a good idea and to do a good, a, an, 
a good idea. I don't know. To me, it's really something that has to be connected. If it's just beautiful, it's not enough. If it's just brilliant or smart, it's not enough. It has to be both. And maybe some people can just see the beauty and cannot see something else. And people maybe cannot see the something else because the beauty makes them uncomfortable. But to me, it has to be these two sides of any art worker's idea are completely important, both. Art has to be beautiful and also art has to be smart or intelligent or something that moves you emotionally and then make you think. And contemplation is something that is also quite really important for me, too. Brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thanks again for coming. Thank you, Gabrielle.